Welcome, fellow crime addicts, to our weekly CA meeting. I'm Kylie. And I'm Casey. Grab a cup of coffee and let's get our fix. In this week's episode, we are taking a deep dive into the National Forest Serial Killer while sipping on some delicious Snickers mocha. This recipe is actually really, really good hot as well, but ours today is iced, of course. This week, we are shouting out Jim P, Sierra R, and Emily P. They have liked, commented, rated, shared, reviewed, or donated. Thank you guys so much. We are so grateful for all the support that you guys have been giving us with our podcast. We love you guys so much. For the chance to get a shout out in our next episode, please donate, like, follow, rate, review, or share across all social media platforms. You can find us at Crime Addicts Pod on iTunes, Twitter, Facebook, and IG, or on the World Wide Web at CrimeAddictsPodcast.com. On our website, you will find a spot for our addicts where you can submit case recommendations, find some pretty amazing copy recipes. And there's also a pretty cool donate button. And if you're an Amazon shopper like myself, go ahead and click our Amazon link. It will redirect you to the Amazon site or app. Simply add your items into the cart and check out. This process will help support our show and it doesn't cost you anything extra. Meredith Hope Emerson was a 24-year-old woman born on June 20th, 1983 in Charleston, South Carolina. She was raised in Holly Springs, North Carolina a suburb of Raleigh, and in Longmont, Colorado. Meredith graduated from Niwot High School. In 2005, she graduated with honors from the University of Georgia with a bachelor's degree in French and was given the Cecil Wilcox Award for Excellence in French. On New Year's Day in 2008, Meredith decided to go for a hike along the Freeman Trail on Blood Mountain in Vogel State Park. She was accompanied by her dog, Ella, and according to several witnesses, they had observed a mysterious older man with his own dog following her. Tragically, Meredith was kidnapped. At the time of her disappearance, Meredith lived in Buford, Georgia. When she did not return home on January 2, 2008, her friends began to search for her without success. The next day, authorities located her 1995 Chevrolet Cavalier, in which they found various items such as her water bottle, a dog leash, and a police baton. Her dog, Ella, was found on January 4, 2008 in Cumming, Georgia, approximately 60 miles away, when she wandered into a Kroger grocery store parking lot. She was returned to Meredith's family. Further investigation into Meredith's companion on that day revealed that he was 61-year-old Gary Hilton, a local drifter known for his strange behavior and vicious temper. Since this revelation, he was announced as a person of interest in the case, with police requesting that they officially interrogate him about the case. On January 4, 2007, a murder arrest warrant was issued that indicated Meredith was murdered on this day in Dawson Forest Wildfire Management Area in Dawson County, Georgia. News of the abduction went national. It soon caught the attention of John Tabor, who's Hilton's former boss at a siding business. When Hilton called him to ask for money, Tabor knew Hilton was the prime suspect in Meredith's disappearance. 
Strangely, Tabor waited over an hour to inform the Georgia Bureau of Investigation, or GBI, about the call. Authorities were able to trace the call to a pancake house off of Blood Mountain. By the time they arrived, however, Hilton was already gone. Later, a witness at a Chevron gas station called DeKalb police and stated, quote, the guy you are looking for is cleaning out his van, end quote. The police quickly arrived on scene and were able to stop the accused before he could bleach the interior of the van. He was transferred to the county jail where he was subsequently charged with kidnapping based on the material evidence connecting him to the case. While he was being held at a federal prison in Atlanta, the search for Meredith's body continued in a 90-square-mile area of the Chattahoochee National Forest. On January 5th, authorities located numerous items belonging to Meredith inside a dumpster near a quick-trip parking lot in Cumming. Her bloodied clothing, wallet, driver's license, a University of Georgia ID card, and a bloodstained car seatbelt were all found. Upon examining his van, the same 2001 Chevrolet Astro as reported earlier in tips by witnesses, authorities noticed that it was missing its rear car seatbelt, which matched the one located among Meredith's personal items. So who is Gary Michael Hilton? Let's start with that he was born on November 22, 1946 in Atlanta, Georgia, to mother Cleo M. Reynolds and father William E. Hilton. He was an only child and allegedly had a turbulent childhood. In 1958, he moved with his mother and stepfather to Hylita, Florida. The next year, when he was 13 years old, he shot his stepfather, Nilo DeBog, who in Hilton's mind had taken away his mother. This was his first attempt at killing another human being, and he failed, as DeBog was only wounded. DeBog decided to give his stepson a second chance and refused to press charges. He sounds like an upstanding citizen based on that. Although there are stories and accusations of DeBog imposing mental and verbal abuse on Hilton as a child. After the shooting, Hilton was briefly confined to a mental hospital for the attack and then released. Hilton's mother would not allow him back into the house until right before school started. Don and Mark Jeffers took Hilton in when his mother wouldn't. Also, when Hilton was younger, he was scalped by a Murphy bed. You know, the ones that fold up into the wall. From this injury, he needed 200 stitches and spent time in the hospital recovering. I would consider this one of those big life events that just might explain some things about Hilton later in life. In 1964, at age 17, Hilton enlisted in the United States Army. According to military records, Hilton was sent to West Germany, where he obtained his GED and was assigned to the Davy Crockett Platoon, named after the coonskin cap-wearing King of the Wild Frontier. Crockett had been a hero to kids like Hilton growing up in the 1950s. There were 19 men in this special platoon. Their task was to direct and deploy the Davy Crockett missile, an XM-388 nuclear projectile launched from either a launched from either a 120 millimeter or 155 millimeter recoilless rifle according to the brookings institution it was the smallest and lightest nuclear weapon ever developed by the united states military designed to use against soviet troop formations 
With a maximum range of 1.24 miles, the Army's idea was to arrange these units armed with handheld nuclear weapons across West Germany, establishing an impenetrable perimeter against an armed Soviet insurgent. If the Soviets appeared on the horizon, word would go up the line to the President of the United States, who would then make the decision whether to fire or not. The members of the Davy Crockett platoon were supposed to be carefully screened for psychological fitness. How, then, did Hilton get in? In truth, being a member of this platoon was a suicide mission. The Davy Crockett soldiers would be blown to hell and back if they ever fired the nuclear-tipped missile. So maybe they found his slight instability appropriate for the task at hand. In fact, perhaps it was precisely this stress that caused Hilton to crack while serving. A few years into his service, Hilton began hearing voices and soon suffered a full-blown schizophrenic breakdown. The army put him into a mental hospital where he was drugged up on Thorazine. Rather than give him a Section 8 psychiatric discharge, the army chose to give him an honorable discharge instead. He was released from the army in 1967 at the age of 21. There's no record that any army personnel followed Hilton into civilian life to see how he functioned in society. Hilton was a long-distance runner and, according to some tests, posed a genius-level IQ. In 1969, Hilton married his first wife, Sue, in DeKalb County, Georgia. The next year, according to the Florida Department of Highway Safety and Motor Vehicles, he qualified for a Florida chauffeur's license which was valid for two years, so they relocated to Florida. The next year, in 1971, Hilton and his wife divorced after only being married for two years. On December 1, 1972, felony charges were filed against Hilton for buying stolen property in Florida under case number F72008604, and a warrant was issued. Just to wrap this up in a nice little bow, according to the court records, an order quashing this warrant in an administrative nolle prose motion was filed by the state attorney and issued by the judge on November 9th, 2007. It appears the statute of limitations ran its course on this one since the statute only allows for prosecution up to five years on the charge of buying stolen property in the state of Florida. Back in 1973, in January, Hilton was convicted of driving under the influence in Miami-Dade County and, in response, his Florida license was revoked for a year. However, he never took steps to reinstate it. On August 24, 1977, Hilton married his second wife, Dina Yvonne Baugh, in DeKalb County, Georgia, same as the first. They were only married for a year and a half when they divorced on May 16, 1978. On March 19, 1979, Hilton married his third wife, Betty Sue Edwards Galloway. Betty was a security officer for Atlanta's Stone Mountain Park. This marriage only lasted seven months before they divorced on October 24, 1979. Hilton never had any children, so he apparently spared the world his spawn, I guess. The pattern of these marriages is really interesting to me because... He first marries a Sue, and then his third wife has a middle name Sue, and then each of them got shorter and shorter and shorter of time with each marriage. His first marriage lasted two years, his second marriage lasting a year and a half, the third marriage didn't even last a whole year. The length of time for each of these marriages is going down with every single one of them. 
And then he's like marrying girls with the same name. It's just kind of weird. In 1982, Hilton was arrested for arson charges. However, he was never convicted of these. In 1983, Hilton was convicted in Clayton County, Georgia, of possession of drugs and carrying a weapon without a license. This weapon was a pistol. During the court proceedings, Hilton was asked why he carried a gun, and he stated that he didn't need one, but that he had one for protection. On July 31st, 1987, Hilton was charged in DeKalb County, Georgia, with theft by deception and possession of marijuana. On November 30th, 1987, he pled guilty to possession of marijuana and pleaded nolo prose to the theft by deception per his plea agreement. So basically, the state was going to prosecute the possession of marijuana charges and not the theft by deception if he took that plea deal. On January 20th, 1994, Hilton was charged in Cobb County, Georgia, with 21 counts of solicitation. On June 20th, 1995, he pled guilty to all 21 counts of solicitation and was sentenced to 10 years of probation. A man by the name of Chris Johnson, who rented a room to Hilton for several months in 1995 in Cobb County, Georgia, described Hilton as, quote, a weird character. On February 2nd, 1995, Hilton was charged with theft by taking, and on August 11th, 1995, Hilton was arrested in DeKalb County, Georgia for stealing books he was hired to sell for the American Book Display Company. Instead, he attempted to sell them for personal profit at a local flea market. On August 27, 1995, he pled guilty to the theft by deception and received five additional years of probation. The other charges were, again, not prosecuted as part of the plea deal. Okay, and this is my favorite part. In 1995, at the age of 48, he helped write and produce a movie called Deadly Run with directors Mark Bender and Donald Farmer, starring Danny Fenley, David Ryder, and Amy Bush. The storyline of the movie goes like this. Respected and very wealthy Atlanta, Georgia area realtor Bobby Wilson has a wife, son, and daughter, but does some things unknown to them. He has a cabin on a rural tract 200 miles to the north, to where he often flies his airplane carrying abducted, minimally attached females, who he then releases as game and fatally hunts. A girlfriend of a victim convinces the cop to help close in on Bobby. I'm not really sure what connections he had to be successful in the film world, especially in Georgia. Like, it wasn't like he was in Hollywood or something. But uh, he must have figured it out to produce the film because it was released. But it is still available and is slightly foreshadowing what we're about to get into with Mr. Hilton. But... uh, Not entirely, but it's interesting that he was a part of writing that storyline. It's like he was trying to figure out like a part two for the movie. Yeah, let me live it out and then (laughs) I'll come back. I'll come back to you with that. (laughs) And it's so early, like take note of that. Like he was 48 years old when that was produced and released. So I don't know how long it took to make it. I don't know how long it takes to make a movie, but I know how long it takes to make a podcast. But I don't know about a movie. So, But he was 48 when that was released, so keep that in mind. Around 1997, Hilton answered a Help Wanted ad for insulated wall systems owned by John Tabor in Gwinnett County, Georgia. Tabor gave Hilton a place to live and employment, so for the next two years, he worked on and off for insulated wall systems by helping the company market its services. 
On August 10, 2004, an Atlanta man named William Brent told DeKalb County, Georgia police that he had witnessed Hilton beating a dog in the park. In 2005, Hilton abandoned a van in the Trey Mountain area of White County, Georgia. He received a citation for doing so, but didn't answer to it. A warrant for his arrest was issued and put into the federal database. So here's the thing about serial killers. They don't just start murdering in their 60s. Something has to set them off or seriously disturb their day-to-day lives. The worst you could say about Hilton before he committed murder was that he was a con man and a petty thief. But that's about it. But that all changed when a Georgia physician prescribed him Ritalin despite the fact that he did not suffer from ADD. Soon after starting to work for John Tabor is when Hilton began taking the Ritalin. Ritalin acts as a stimulant for those without ADD, and his demeanor completely changed. He grew irritable and confrontational. He was acting out. He even threatened Tabor with violence. On September 26th of 2007, Tabor filed a complaint with the local police department because Hilton threatened to kill him if he didn't pay him $10,000. It's safe to say that at this point, uh, Tabor definitely told Hilton that he had to go. So... He said that he was clearing all the stuff out of his property for the next couple of days and, you know, that he finally left, which is really interesting to me that it took him so long to call the police then later when he calls and is asking them for money. Like, I don't understand that, but okay. If Hilton had one passion, one comfort that offset the instability of his professional and personal life, it was definitely the outdoors. So, cut loose. Hilton hit the road in his Chevy Astro van with Dandy, his dog and ever-present companion, popping Ritalin as he went. Hilton preferred national parks, and so he headed north, leaving Georgia in 2007 and entering North Carolina's Pisgah National Park. Continuing on with Meredith's investigation... On January 4th, 2007, crime scene investigators obtained blood evidence that was matched to Meredith's DNA. Hilton was subsequently charged with Meredith's murder. During his initial interrogation, he readily admitted to killing Meredith, speaking in bursts and looking to make a deal. On January 7th, 2008, Gary Hilton appeared in court and was denied bond. The prosecution agreed to take the death penalty off the table if Hilton would lead investigators to her body. Hilton agreed and did just that. Under heavy escort, Hilton led authorities to a remote road in Dawson Forest, 35.7 miles south of Blood Mountain, where he buried Meredith's body. Clearly, the GBI had been looking for Meredith in the wrong place. Meredith's head was gone. I buried it nearby, Hilton told police. He had beheaded Meredith in an attempt to obscure identification, but the coroner determined that it had been done post-mortem. It was determined throughout the investigation that Meredith had been hiking when Hilton attacked her with an army knife. She was martial arts trained, so she fought him and was screaming while doing so. But Hilton trained in hand-to-hand combat from his army days, eventually got the better of her. He knew that he needed to get her to stop, so he gave her two black eyes. Once subdued, he marched her down the mountain to his van. Later, Hilton asked Meredith to give him the PIN number to her credit card, but when she kept giving him the wrong number, Hilton got mad and killed her. 
The police said that Meredith fought to save her life for four days when she lost the battle and Hilton killed and decapitated her. Hilton stated he could not bring himself to kill her dog and that when it came to the woman herself, quote, it was hard. You got to remember we had spent several good days together, end quote. Barfing in my mouth right now. (laughs) I want to vomit. I cannot believe that he said that they spent several good days together. I guarantee you that is not how she would describe those days. No. Yeah. No, definitely not. She was fighting for her life. There's no way. And she's not here to tell us that. So I think that that's valid proof enough. Yeah, I'm not just going to take his word for that. No. It's so hard for you to kill her. And gosh, it was even harder to kill her dog. So spare the dog's life. I don't understand that thought process. Autopsy results for Meredith indicated she was killed on January 4th, 2008 from blunt force trauma to the head. On January 30th, 2008... He was sentenced to life in prison with the possibility of parole in 30 years at the age of 91. As you probably are guessing by now, Hilton was later linked to and then charged with additional murders, three to be exact. In September 2009, a hiker found camping supplies believed to belong to Gary Hilton, which were then turned over to the Florida authorities for use in the upcoming trials. Okay, so let's dive into those murders now, and you're going to notice that these dates go back in time prior to Meredith. So, on October 21st of 2007, a retired couple of avid hikers living in Horseshoe, North Carolina, John and Irene Bryant, they were 80 and 84 respectfully, left for a hike through the Pisgah National Forest leaving their parked maroon Ford Escape at the Yellow Gap Road near U.S. Route 276. Irene and John had been married 55 years at this point. After not hearing from them for two weeks, family members reported the couple as missing to the Henderson County Sheriff's Office, who promptly launched a search for the Bryants, consisting of more than 30 volunteers, cadaver dogs, and a helicopter. Through examining their phone records, it was learned that Irene had attempted to call 911 on the day of her disappearance, but, tragically, the signal was lost and the call was dropped. On November 9th, the search party located the body of a woman on the Barnett Branch Trail, covered with leaves. Suspecting that it might belong to Irene, they sent the body to the county coroner in Chapel Hill to perform an autopsy. Three days later, the body was positively identified as that of Irene, who had apparently been bludgeoned to death with a blunt instrument. As this was now considered a homicide perpetrated on federal land, the FBI launched an investigation with an award of $10,000 to whoever could provide information leading to the killer. Simultaneously, it was revealed that a bank card belonging to the Bryants had been used the following day at 7.35 p.m. and 75 miles away to withdraw $300 from an ATM in Ducktown, Tennessee, with the surveillance cameras showing an older Caucasian man wearing a yellow rain jacket whose hood was obscuring his face. By this time, John was still considered a missing person, possibly abducted by whoever had killed his wife. Hilton, meanwhile, left North Carolina driving south into Georgia, It was later discovered that on October 26, 2007, at 12.51 p.m., Hilton could be seen on a dash cam footage in Cherokee County, Georgia. 
Hilton also said he was stopped six hours earlier in Gwinnett County, Georgia. He stopped to set up camp on a private hunting preserve in Cherokee County. A local noticed his presence and called police to make a complaint. A deputy drove out to kick Hilton off of the property. Upon arrival, the deputy ran Hilton's license through a state database. No outstanding warrants in the Peach State. At that time, there was no requirement that the license be ran through the federal database, so it wasn't. If Hilton's license had been checked at the federal level, the deputy would have caught his outstanding warrant for that unanswered citation from 2005. Hilton would have been arrested there and then, two people would be alive, and this case would stop right here. Sadly, nothing of the sort took place. The deputy told Hilton to pack up his gear and clear out. He was free to go. Leaving Cherokee County, Hilton drove south, crossing into Florida and entering the Apalachicola National Forest outside of Tallahassee by the middle of November. Despite another run-in with the Park Service's officers on November 17th, Hilton was let go with a warning not to exceed the park's 14-day camping limit. And once again, his name was not cross-referenced in a federal database for outstanding warrants. On February 3, 2008, Mark Waldrop, a hunter, accidentally discovered a skull in Nantahala National Forest in North Carolina, just off the Forest Service Road, known as the Switchbacks. After calling the local deputy for assistance, the duo investigated the scene, and upon closer inspection, a pelvis and spine were located about 20 yards from the skull. Since there was no clothing or identification near the remains, the bones were sent to the medical examiner in Chapel Hill in order to identify the decedent. After two days, the body was positively identified as that of John Bryant. He had apparently died of a gunshot wound to the head. Irene is considered to be Hilton's first victim of murder, but not his first conviction. John is listed officially as his second victim. Irene had been killed on federal land in Pisgah National Forest in Transylvania County, North Carolina. Hilton was ultimately linked to these murders. However, how he came to befriend Irene and John Bryant is unknown. The details surrounding Hilton's abduction of 46-year-old nurse Cheryl Dunlap on December 1, 2007 in the Apalachicola National Forest remain a mystery. Just 5 feet 4 inches, Cheryl had thick, wavy brown hair, brown eyes, and thin lips. She was a mother and devoted member of the Evangelical Christian River of Life Church. Cheryl was reported missing by her best friend when she did not show up to church one Sunday morning. Soon after her disappearance, Cheryl's car was found with a flat tire on the Crawfordville Highway parked just outside of the park's entrance. She may have been attempting to flag someone down for assistance when Hilton came upon her. On December 3, 2007, 46-year-old Cheryl Hodges Dunlap, a resident of Crawfordville, Florida, did not appear for her job at Florida State University in Tallahassee, where she worked as a nurse. Considering this behavior to be unusual, her colleagues reported her missing on the following day. A few days after the discovery of Cheryl's car, security camera footage surfaced of a man in a rubber mask attempting to use Cheryl's bank card at ATMs in Tallahassee, Florida. 
Approximately five days after she went missing, a search party of around 180 people was organized to help locate her. And despite initially being unable to find anything, the members still hoped they would locate Cheryl alive. There is some discrepancy regarding the circumstances of her body being located, so we are going to share both based on the resources that we've referenced. On or about December 15th, 2007, either either one Apalachicola Park Rangers noticed buzzards picking over a large carcass. They realized that it was the body of a woman as they grew closer, with gaping wounds on the torso and legs. Then they finally noticed what wasn't there. Both hands had been cut off and the head was missing. Or, two, Ronnie Rents, a hunter passing through the woods in the Apalachicola National Forest with his dogs, discovered the decapitated, decomposing body of a white woman, immediately reporting the finding to the state authorities. Regardless of how she was discovered, authorities were initially unsure whether the body was in fact Cheryl's, so it was sent to the medical examiner, who confirmed that it was indeed hers via DNA profiling. While authorities scoured the area for clues to their killer, Hilton hit the road. By the end of 2007, he was back in Georgia, just in time for New Year's Eve. As we know, Meredith would encounter Hilton on New Year's Day in 2008 and become his fourth documented victim, although he was tried and convicted of this one first. Classifying her death as a homicide, authorities announced that they were looking for a suspicious green truck seen in the area around the time of Cheryl's disappearance, driven by a man who had used her ATM card five times in Tallahassee, withdrawing $700 from her account. Over the next few days, numerous tips were submitted to the police, some of which were about a strange homeless man with a dog who was driving a green 2001 Chevrolet Astrovan, but these tips did not lead to an arrest. Around this time, rumors began circulating that the serial offender was operating between Georgia and Florida, but at the time, the Leon County Sheriff's Office statement was that they were investigating the case as an isolated homicide. Knowing what we know now, that was incorrect, as Hilton would later be named responsible for Cheryl's murder, too. The Florida Department of Law Enforcement found and identified Cheryl's body, hands, and head. As in Meredith's case, Hilton had mutilated the body in a desperate attempt to obscure identification, but it didn't work. The forensic analysis used a portion of Cheryl's thigh muscle to identify her. Okay, this is amazing to me. How do we have any unidentified corpses in today's day and age? Seriously. Like, how impressive is that? From her thigh muscle? That's insane. I didn't even know that that was a thing. Like, I didn't know that they could. I mean, it makes sense that they can do it, but I didn't know that they could do it. <laughs> yeah, you just don't think about it. And I mean, it makes sense that they're just trying to match, you know, the hands and the head and the uh, the other parts, right, to the body. So I understand that they didn't necessarily identify her by her thigh muscle. But seriously, how impressive is that? If nothing else, it gives me hope for the future, for identifying bodies to reduce the amount of John and Jane Doe's that are out there. Especially considering that this was back in 2007. That's amazing to me. Like, every day I just feel like our technology is getting better and just gives me more and more hope that 
these unidentified bodies are going to be identified and, you know, there will be closure for families someday and victims and families someday. Yeah, I can't wait till they're able to go in their backlogs and use today's like technology for old cases and yeah, and be able to identify some of these people. Right. Just like Irene, Cheryl had also been killed on federal land in the Apalachicola National Forest located in Florida's Leon County. With the Georgia deal signed, sealed, and delivered, the question then became who would next indict Hilton? Florida or the national government? Sheriff David Mahoney of North Carolina's Transylvania County jostled with the U.S. attorney over who had jurisdiction to prosecute Hilton for Irene's murder. Quote, well, Florida does have a fast track on the death penalty, doesn't it? He mused. From 1976 to 2007, the federal government had executed just three people on capital murder charges. In that same period, Florida had put 64 people to death, averaging two a year. The incentive to get Hilton to the Sunshine State for a death penalty showdown picked up steam when John's body was located. Hilton was successfully extradited to Florida, where he would soon stand trial for the murder of Cheryl. Despite his efforts to fight his extradition, Hilton was brought to Leon County, Florida from the Georgia Diagnostic and Classification State Prison. On June 6, 2008, Sergeant Graham and two other officers drove Hilton from Georgia to Florida. Although Hilton was not questioned, he spoke for nearly the entire five-hour drive, which was recorded. The state also played portions of this recording at trial. Hilton stated, quote, I'm not all that bad. I mean, you got to understand. I mean, I'm sure you can see. I mean, I'm a fucking genius, man. I'm not a, I'm, I'm not bad at all. I just, you know, lost my mind for a little bit. Lost a grip on myself, man. What can I tell you? FBI and everybody else is trying to scratch their head. Hey, guys don't get started doing my shit at 61 years old. It just doesn't happen, you know? Like, there's a retired FBI agent named Cliff Van, Clifford Van Zant, that keeps getting himself in the news talking about me. And he said, this guy didn't just fall off the turnip truck, he said. You know, in other words, he's been doing this. But like I told you before, you know, when I saw you before, I said, remember, I said I'd give you one for free. Nothing before September, okay? I mean, I'm not joking, okay? I just... I got old and sick and couldn't make a living and just lost, flat, lost my fucking mind for a while, man. I couldn't get a grip on it, end quote. Additionally, Hilton made statements to a fellow inmate at the Leon County Jail that were overheard by correctional officer Caleb Wynn. Specifically, Hilton told inmate Summers that he could answer all of the state attorney's questions if he would give him a life sentence, that he could reveal where the head was located, that his bayonet was used on Cheryl's tire, that he would explain how he, quote, pulled it off on a busy highway, that he spent a few hours or a few days with Cheryl, and that he felt no regret other than getting caught. In Florida, if you kill somebody, they give you a million-dollar defense with all kinds of experts, then the jury convicts you and the judge sentences you to death. Like all death penalty cases, Hilton's wound its way through the pretrial motions, Attorneys Ennis Suber and Stephen Benn, who specialized in capital murder cases, were hired as his public defenders. At his trial, 
Prosecutors claimed that Hilton had abducted Cheryl from the Leon Sinks geological area and held her captive for two days before eventually killing her and then decapitating her body. He also attempted to get rid of potential evidence by incinerating her head and hands in a fire pit before finally dumping the body in the forest. When Hilton's defense team claimed that there was no forensic proof, the prosecutors reminded that Hilton had claimed on tape that he had disposed of Cheryl's body, but now deliberately tried to distance himself from it. In February 2011, after two years of pretrial hearings, Hilton stood before a judge in the Tallahassee courtroom. At the end of a four-week trial and four hours of deliberation, the jury unanimously found Hilton guilty on three of the four charges with a recommendation to impose the death penalty. On February 22, 2011, he was officially sentenced to death for the crime and sent off to Florida's death row. Quote, we are extremely pleased with the death verdict and even more so that it was unanimous. Obviously, the jury saw what needed to be done to bring justice and that's what Mr. Hilton got today and Mrs. Dunlap and her family got, end quote. Prosecutor Georgia Kaplan said as he left the courtroom. State attorney Willie Meggs said that he was surprised by the unanimous verdict but said that if there was ever a case for it, this was it. However, the decision was bittersweet for Cheryl's close friend, Gloria Tucker, who was satisfied with the decision, but said it would not bring justice for the loss of her dear friend she knew as Sherry. I don't think any family members got justice, Tucker said. He's not equal for Sherry. She grew up with a bad home life and grew up to be a lovely person. Hilton's defense attorney sought to persuade the jury that his unhappy childhood and lifetime of emotional abuse and drug abuse contributed to, quote, a perfect storm that led to the killings. In 2012, Hilton was brought to trial for a third time for the murders of John and Irene Bryant. As part of a plea deal with the prosecutor, he admitted to his guilt in the killings and was sentenced to an additional life term without the chance of parole. During the hearings, Hilton described how he had killed Irene on the spot and then kidnapped John to extort his bank details before shooting him in the head with a 22 Magnum and then dumping his body in the switchbacks. U.S. District Judge Martin Redinger ordered that Hilton's federal life sentences be served consecutively with an earlier life sentence for murdering Meredith Emerson. Federal sentences do not have the possibility of parole. So as a recap to his charges and convictions, the federal government out of North Carolina convicted Hilton of two counts of first-degree murder, kidnapping, robbery, and use of a firearm during a crime of violence. He was sentenced to life without the possibility of parole for these crimes. In Georgia, Hilton was convicted of murder and sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. And in Florida, Hilton was convicted of first-degree murder kidnapping, and grand theft. For these crimes, he was sentenced to death. Okay, we are running out of time for this week, but I do want to talk really quickly about something that I found. So in February of 2010, Hustler Magazine reporter Fred Rosen asked for the Meredith Emerson crime scene and autopsy photos as part of an open records request filed with the Georgia Bureau of Investigations, or GBI. 
the victim's family requested for the public records request to be denied. In March of 2010, so the following month, DeKalb Superior Court Judge Daniel Corsi issued a temporary order restraining the GBI from releasing, quote, any and all photographs, visual images, or depictions of Meredith Emerson, which show Meredith in an unclothed or dismembered state, end quote. This order came on the same date that the Georgia House Governmental Affairs Committee unanimously passed the Meredith Emerson Memorial Privacy Act, which prevents crime scene photos from being publicly released or disseminated, according to Representative Jill Chambers. House Bill 1322 stops the dissemination of images of victims who in the photos appear nude, bruised, bloodied, or in a broken state with open wounds, a state of dismemberment, or decapitation. Quote, We have to walk the line between open record laws and the constitutional provisions that allow women to be able to be photographed nude or in pornography when they knowingly and willingly offer their bodies for dissemination, Chambers stated. Quote, Meredith isn't in a position to give that kind of permission to have her exploited in that kind of venue. She said, we're not only protecting future victims of crime, we're protecting the integrity of what happened to Meredith, end quote. Hustler's response was through an email that said, quote, Hustler is aware of the GBI's refusal to honor its reporter's request for copies of the Emerson crime scene photos, which were to be used in a news story about this crime. Hustler and Mr. Flint disagree with the GBI's position and are currently exploring all legal options available to them should the decision be made to go forward with the story. Okay, I really want to talk about this for just a second because I think that... So I would like to believe, I guess, that the media request was out of good intention, right? They wanted to make sure that they were covering the story accurately and appropriately and that they had, you know, the correct information according to the crime scene photos and then it would get to be released with their article and, you know, they would have like exclusive access and I understand, you know, they're trying to sell articles, you know, I I understand, but I don't know, from a moral perspective and, you know, having like a sense of integrity, I think that's like the strangest request to ask for. And let's give this reporter the benefit of the doubt and say that he didn't know all of the details and what was in those those pictures, right? And what they were depicting. And it was an innocent request. Once they denied it for that reason, and then that Senate bill passed that said that not only could they not do that for Meredith, but they couldn't do it for any victim under those specific circumstances. It just seems like they should have been like, you're right, our bad. We didn't think about it like that. You know what I mean? But like instead, it almost appears like with their response that they had zero remorse for the fact that they just made this request and that that hurt the family's feelings, obviously, right? They're like, no, 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 no. We don't want that, you know? Um, And they didn't care about that. And then on top of that, like, they were perfectly willing to show her decapitated, bloody body that was nude and not in good shape. I mean, this was, this body was not in good shape when they found it. And that's obviously what these crime scene photos consist of. And they have no care in the world that they're trying to share this to the world. I don't know. I just, I get like a a bad vibe from it. And it kind of makes me look at Hustler, you know, kind of like almost in a negative way. I don't know. What, What do you think about that? 
I feel like the reporter maybe wasn't so innocent. I feel like he knew exactly what he was trying to get. And I just feel gross about that request. Like it makes me feel gross to knowing that like there are people that would want to get that and would want to release it. And have your name on it. Like I'm responsible for this. Like I obtained these photos and shared them with the public. Like exactly. Like I feel like there's certain like circumstances where like a crime scene photo could be used appropriately in a news article like we see it all the time but when someone's nude their head's gone like that's just not something that you're composing like yeah this body was not in good shape i don't why can't you get a picture of her like you know when she was alive and share that or like how beautiful she was or any you know yeah why does it have to be something so morbid Right. And I just feel like that just shows like zero respect for the victim. Like she was a person. And I I mean, I wouldn't, if that happened to me, I wouldn't want pictures of my decapitated head all over the place. Like it's just weird. Not to mention she doesn't have a say. (laughs) She's not here. They're treating her kind of like a, um, just another, like just a person, like, you know, not really like a human, like just like, Oh, it's a dead body. Thing. Not like that yeah. was a person. And so, like, just disrespect to her and disrespect mm-hmm. to the family. Like, mm-hmm. she left behind people. Like, mm-hmm. yeah, and they're victims too. And he's not, they're not, I mean, the reporter and also Hustler are not being sympathetic to that at all. Yeah, it just makes me feel gross. Like, I just, I don't feel comfortable with it. Me either. I, I'm with you on that one. Okay. I wanted to know your opinion on that because I found that when I was looking through some stuff and I was like, what the hell? <laughs> I wanted to like throw up. I was like, they did what? <laughs> it's so strange. Like, I mean, I know we look at morbid things all the time and we're doing research on, you know, true crime, which some people would find to be really weird. But I think where the biggest difference is, is that I'm not seeking out pictures of dead, decapitated, decomposing bodies. And I'm also trying to understand the psychology behind it, you know, and bring awareness to these these types of crimes, you know, and and study what has been going on in historical cases. And I think that it's a completely different approach (laughs) to try to collect certain things. And this being one of those, like, I just, I don't think that that's appropriate. And I think, I don't know. I just wanted to know how you felt about it. Cause I read that and I was like, wait, what? I got to ask Casey about this. (laughs) Yeah. And I almost feel like, I don't know, maybe I'm like super far the other way, but even like when we are doing research on these cases, um, and there's a photo that maybe is like too explicit. I almost like hurry past it and don't look at it because I'm like, I don't want to see that. And it's not my place. And, you know, right. be respectful to the dead, you know, and I just, okay. I, I just zoom right past it. But like these people are trying to right. get it. And I'm like, that's weird. Like, <laughs> Yeah, they're trying to be the ones to be responsible for releasing it. I don't know. I just felt uncomfortable with that whole situation. And I was like, oh. I wonder if I'm the only one or if Casey feels the same way. So I'm glad I'm not the only one. (laughs) All right, addicts. So with that, we have run out of time for this week's episode, but come back next week for part two. 
We are going to be talking about the appeals process that he has been through, and it actually is educational regarding the death penalty over the years and how it has applied to his case in the state of Florida, which is super, super interesting. I can't wait to get into that part of it. Um, We're also going to get into some other suspected victims that could or could not be involved. It's, It's really difficult to say. And we're going to, of course, have some more discussion and bring up some more facts about this case that we can't wait to share with you. There was just way too much to fit into one week. So with that, addicts, come back next week for part two of the National Forest Serial Killer. And until then, stay alive, stay alert, and stay caffeinated.